welcome to episode one of Manifesto of a Fish, the name of our podcast that's official that we've decided on and we're all good with. Uh, today we're joined by our good friend Jeff, who we've never met before and never spoken to before. We haven't done an episode before with him. Jeff, welcome to the show. And we're joined by Alex as well. Alex and Jeff, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Dear listeners, I'll, I'll confess, we might have recorded this episode once before. Um, and then uh, sort of Jeff, Jeff is like a quarterback and he threw the audio ball to us and I was running, running, running. And I did the, and I did the like long ball, like somersault flip thing. And uh, just like completely, I thought I caught it, but it, I didn't. So Jeff's very kind and uh, has agreed to redo this episode with us. So Big shout out to Jeff, number one. But also, Jeff, you're working on a project, I think a little bit, let's say, more professional than ours. But I'd love to talk to you about what you're working on and, and kind of about you as well, because you have a very interesting background in the history of environmentalism. Mm. I, I'm not sure that I would necessarily call it a little bit more professional. I'm not sure that it would be, I would call it professional at all. But uh, I am working on a project, I guess. Um, I am also working on a podcast everyone's working on a podcast all of a sudden um it is uh called terraform and it is a history of science fiction and environmentalism and like the history of utopian technology in i was gonna say in the west but honestly i like i'm planning on doing stuff in the ussr and stuff on china so we'll see how long how much there is to sustain that but uh yeah sort of starting looking back from the 1930s you know right back right right down to like the sort of as much as hugo gernsback the sort of guy who codified science fiction into what it is today with ray guns and spaceships and whatever very rightly gets a rap as a open fascist and <laughs> racist fool. of um, course a 1930s guy yeah, and, for, and again, yeah, for a guy who is doing this in the 1920s, um, <laughs> his number one managing editor uh, was a, well, I was going to say he was a communist, but he wasn't actually a communist. He was a member of the SPA, who was then a leader in the joint Socialist Party of America slash Communist Party of USA workers alliance um, but also he was the founder of the like professional organization for american rocketry and also he was the sort of like guy who made all the stories good it's very like 30s though to have like, yeah it's 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 it is a very 1930s story about a guy who was really convinced that you could change both the world and the weather with rockets which not wrong about on both counts yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i guess if you like if you think about like how rockets work and the whole carbon dioxide thing they they were right they they fucking did it they they got our asses with those rockets for sure well that's very cool thank you and um just a little background on yourself so you you it's you have a phd in the history of environmentalism um i I will admit I dropped out of my PhD in the history of environmentalism, but yes, I uh, was a PhD candidate. I was everything but finishing the dissertation on um, the history of American environmentalism in the 1970s, mm -hmm. uh, specifically around like 
technological innovations in the city and like people who are really concerned about smog and like what are we going to do about this and how does like sort of environmental concerns relate with like social concerns around you know the riots in 1968 and urban decay and all of this stuff how does that play into like the way that people are thinking about what the environment is what the effects that the environment has on like the individual are and what are the like in my case, really goofy ways that you can sort of try to solve that with technology. For example, you can get rid of all cars. Totally reasonable plan. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, not not it would not, make sense. Not not, not opposed. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, instead, replace them with a little car on wheels that drives around a town in West Virginia, and it goes around on a big concrete track. And you press the button for where you want to go, and everyone is very convinced for like one year in 1973 that this is the solution for America's social ills. Like a train, wait, like a train track for little baby cars? Was yes, that it's what? a train track for little baby cars. Um, <laughs> That's hilarious. cars are, it's called personal rapid transit. It is, the car looks like, in, if you just chopped off like the first 10 feet of a subway car, mm-hmm. um, it's, you know, got like two seats. Uh, it's enough for, I think you can probably cram like 15 people in there if you really tried, but it's enough for like five or six people to stand comfortably. The idea was, I mean, you know, it's the 1970s. Like people have seen like in the span of certainly their lifetime, if you're like a 50 year old, like working for the Nixon administration or whatever, you remember when cities were just, they didn't have substantial car presences, especially like small towns. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, people drive through on the road through town. And then all the other streets are just like, there's horses, there's gravel, there's grass. Like there's not a, the sort of real, like constant streetscape that like we are sort of inculcated in at this point. Um, and so for the inventor of the system is this guy named Sammy Elias, who was a immigrant from Cairo, uh, came to the U S in like the fifties. Um, you know, he was like, well, this is only a system that's like 50 years old. Obviously we can just come up with a new better idea and my new better idea is what if you didn't own your car what if your car was just a train system and you pressed a button to go where you want and then the nixon administration gave him money for it because they wanted to win west virginia and be the first republicans in 40 years to win west virginia <laughs> and then they built it and they underfunded it and so it didn't get to demonstrate any of the fun things like pressing a button to go where you want and uh then it failed the end what 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 did it actually build like was there a, a functioning train or was it just like hey we've got these concrete piles oh there's there. a functioning train to this day uh if you go to morgantown west virginia you can uh go ride around this like you know it's a college town huh. you can go to like the big basketball stadium you can go to the law college you can go to downtown um and you can go to the library and i think you may, maybe go to like the engineering buildings as well uh, but they're all on like a line. The idea they what they wanted to originally do was they wanted to have it split and like fork. So if you wanted to go to like the grocery store, which is the place where it was supposed to go that it doesn't go. Um, well, I mean, it's supposed to go like this suburb, suburb called Star City, but whatever. It's basically the grocery store and like four bars because it's a college town. The idea was like it was supposed to fork and the computer would like if you say you want to go there, it would wait for like two other people to press the button saying I want to go to Star City. And then a train would come and they would take all three of you to Star City. Um, and that would be different from going to the basketball stadium or the hospital or whatever. And so 
they built enough to build like one line of it, but that wasn't <laughs> enough to actually demonstrate the idea that they were supposed to be building. Right. They, they invented a train. Exactly. They invented a really, really teeny tiny train. <laughs> that, that actually rocks. And you know what? I'm a big fan of trains and, and the more trains we can get, like, frankly, you know, I'll take, I was originally envisioning like a Jetsons kind of style thing where it's just a chair that like hauls your ass, just like zips you across town. And then, you know, you don't put your seatbelt on, you hit a bump and it like puts you through a chain link fence and like grates you or whatever. But uh, no, that rocks. That's very interesting. Yeah, no, apparently it's very safe. Uh, I mean, it, uh, it breaks down and doesn't run all the time. But I, as far as I know, the only accident was like two or three years ago when a giant boulder crashed into the train Which while it was moving. Which not much you can do so, about that. Not a lot you can yeah. do to stop that. Yeah. And I don't think anybody got hurt. The boulder was moving? A boulder rolled down a hill in like a big rainstorm. Oh, okay. So there was like a cartoon villain on the top of a hill. It's like, fuck this thing. Snidely Whiplash, you know, rolling his little mustache, pressing a big boulder down a hill to run into the ancient train. Hmm. it's fun though yeah and it's a a reminder too that like you know we kind of artificially constrain our horizons a little bit uh if we're not careful yeah like i mean there's a way that like we like you know this system is it's a century old like automobility like it's not that old like my house is older than that like mm-hmm. it's that we we sort of like artificially constrain our horizons about what can be done uh, and even if this system is goofy and silly and the political organizing around it was ultimately, uh, insufficient to its moment, mm-hmm. you know, it's a, it's a, and it, you know, it's a goofy top-down technical solution. It's still like an inspiring goofy top-down technical solution. Because there's this idea in that, that like, oh, we can do things a different way. Like we have some agency in this world, which is an idea that I think uh, is pretty absent uh, from a lot of politics. Uh, yeah. And like from that urban planning perspective, seemingly just a lot of cities were built by guys that own car dealerships. And they're like, no, no, it's it's better if we have roads everywhere. And it's just always cars. But uh, that's probably a whole episode at some point to talk about how how power gets adjudicated on a municipal level which is to say it sort of whoever has the most money kind of which doing that is insane i mean especially in a a college town like one of the things that gets me every time is if you go to the the bar there's a goddamn parking lot like the government wants you to drive yeah, how's it supposed to work <laughs> <laughs> It is, it is very funny when I see, like, I live in just, I live in one of the most sprawling suburban cities in North America, by my estimation. Um, and you have these, like, massive pockets of homes, and then you have one bar, and that's it. It's like a strip mall with a bar and then, like, a Pilates studio or whatever, something. Something nobody's, like, it's it's effectively a one-use building. Like, the alcoholics do the exercise in the morning, and then you come back in the evening for, for the liquor. But it's like... Only the people that are within walking distance, which is maybe, I don't know, 2% of the people that visit that bar are not driving. So there's just like this quiet society of like, anyway, I'll have, I'll have nine drinks, but I should be fine to drive after that. Like, are you sure you're good to drive? I don't know. It seems like a bad design. It seems like someone's trying to trip. Yeah, they literally are setting you up to fail. Uh, (laughs) And this is why we need to get 
into trains and into bicycles because these are 100% safe to operate at any level of impairment, period. And seeing a, a drunk person on a light rail system, the best. I love it. I love being on a train at like 11 p.m. And there's a guy that has, it took him 30 seconds to get on the train. And then he's stumbling around. Is he going to vomit on me? How do I like dance around this guy? It's the best. I love that stuff. It's like a, a beautiful sort of human moment on the light rail. Whereas when that guy's driving, it's like, you're like, ah, oh, he's serving all over the fucking place. But, you know, who's this fucking idiot? You know? It it turns these beautiful moments into these moments of hatred uh, of your fellow man. Well, listen, Jeff, that sounds like an awesome podcast, and I appreciate you sharing your knowledge with us. Uh, this is episode one, uh, so we'll explain the format, and uh, maybe I'll not explain the anachronism of how these episodes get stitched together in terms of being released, because through episodes two through nine, you will hear many debates on the name of this, and suspiciously, episode one has a very firm name that I may have just sort of press-ganged Alex into at this point. But the whole point of this podcast that we're doing so far is to have fun talking about the climate with our buddies, number one. Number one rule is always have fun. Number two rule is look at all these terrible articles on the internet, and uh, let's rip them to shreds. When we first did this episode, I picked some real bangers. And I revisited them, and we have to come back to them. Because I'm not going to lie, guys, these articles, I think about them all the time now, especially the first one. It is, it haunts me. It's like uh, uh, some sort of physical virus that there has been, you know, some deep state activist has drilled a hole in my brain and put in a microchip that Vox.com has their grubby hands all over. So I'm just going to I'm just going to jump right into uh, this first article, which is called Stop Telling Kids That Climate Change Will Destroy Their World by Kelsey Piper. And this is on Vox.com, the best website on the planet. And uh, here's an excerpt just from the beginning of the article. As I've written about before, climate change is going to be bad and it will hold back humanity from thriving as much as we should this century. It will likely cause mass migration and displacement and extinction of many species. And uh, that's hilarious because I feel like you're also burying the lead when you're talking about, oh, a, an extinction of many species. I feel like that list could probably go on a lot longer than just that, that sort of first sizzle sentence there in terms of actually it's going to impact everything for everyone everywhere. And uh, it's, it's not going to be just those three things. But, hey, I, I, I'm not the one, you know, trying to make that. And this framing of like hold us back from thriving is wild uh, yeah <laughs> like this sort of thing of like oh we're like you know we're not gonna things are not gonna grow as as big or whatever you know like we're not gonna mm -hmm. not as much good stuff is gonna happen when it's more the opposite of like a lot of bad things will happen we're gonna produce less billionaires than we ever have a massive <laughs> failure of society yeah uh, the, the article goes on here. I've got a little bit of a longer excerpt here. And this is a quote in the article. I unequivocally reject, scientifically and personally, the notion that children are somehow doomed to an unhappy life, Kate Marvel, a client scientist at Columbia, told Ezra Klein in his column this week about overcoming climate despair. Writing aimed at adults doesn't always do the best job of striking a balance, though not everyone agrees on precisely what that balance is. 
books like The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming, to my mind, do a reasonable job of describing some extreme scenarios that really are worth contemplating, but they still don't add up to an uninhabitable earth or even one that will be an awful place to live. Which is interesting where you say, hey, there's this book called An Uninhabitable Earth that I think has some good points and is well to be considered, but I don't think our earth will be uninhabitable. Like, okay, that's that's a crazy dichotomy to introduce in your article where it's like, maybe the earth will be un, un, uninhabitable, but I don't think it will be. Me, the guy writing an article for Fox.com. And that's the thing, I think, with this like climate despair and what the sentiment being expressed here is it's this like, that's the thing with this article is, and articles like it, is it's this like frustration of like, I want to be deluded. I want to be delusional about this. I want to harbor beliefs that are not true. And I'm extremely frustrated by you <laughs> attempting to <laughs> challenge my beliefs talking about stuff here of like like climate despair this is this is fake this is bullshit <laughs> this is not real <laughs> the realization that these people are fighting against is the realization that like they have a responsibility to be doing things that they're not doing and a responsibility to stop doing things that they are doing that there are changes that they need to make and changes that are going to happen regardless of what decisions that they do. I'm already mad. I'm sorry. I know. <laughs> I know. Like that it's I have a syndrome not climate despair but article despair when I read these where it's clearly like there is this big media narrative that's all designed around like trying to keep your reader not not running screaming from what you're saying or if they do run screaming, they like buy a gun to shoot a particular person that like interferes with their lives rather than yours. We, we've talked about this in future episodes, I think. I think in the future we will talk about the idea that if you if you if you don't accept reality, it won't impact you. Which is which is the craziest part of it for me because it's like is is your reality not just the things that happen in your life? And if those become out of your control because of the climate, shouldn't don't you have a vested interest in some of those things changing now so it's not terrible in the future? I don't know. Maybe that's too radical. But I think there's also this pit, this bit at the end where they talk about like they don't add up to this world that would be an awful place to live in. And it's like this is like the most insane kind of privileged belief, right? Because the world is already an awful place to live in for a lot of people. And that number of people for whom the world is an awful place is going to go up. Like, that's the big story with climate change is that, like, more and more people are going to be put in these precarious and awful situations that already exist. Hunger already exists. Like, migration already exists. Natural disasters already exist. Like, conflict, state retreat, all of these things are already existing. They're just going to get worse. And you're, like, the, the position in this article is... I'm so far away from from the bottom that it'll take a very long time for suffering to creep all the way back up to me. And that's also the case for my children, you know? Like that's what this this comes out of, but it's it's not even that because it's not even a realization uh that other people are, you know, suffering. It's this like complete head in the clouds like 
and and it's so I'll I'll just I'll take that jumping off point to mention the next excerpt from this article, uh, <laughs> quoting, "Yes, some things will be worse, but because of progress on many fronts in addressing extreme poverty and disease, as well as general economic growth." Our kids' lives will be better than our parents' lives were. Maybe your kids, you know, maybe your kids are going to fucking Yale and getting a job at a goddamn hedge fund and like things are going to go well for them. Maybe that's true. Okay. That is not true for everybody. Not everybody has kids that are going to fucking Yale, period. And Jeff, would you say that historically it's the case that economic growth has turned into better lives for everybody in, in terms of white? Yeah, we got a historian on here. Oh God, no, not 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 particularly. And I mean, more to the point, like this is like it's so caught up in this notion of a sort of like progress that is completely detached from the people making the progress. That there is a sort of like technological it's not even like technological i mean it's technological wiggism i guess but uh it's 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 a technological wiggism without the like people pushing it along towards a better more moral future there's a sort of expectation in this piece that like the future is going to get better because technology is going to get better and the reason why technology is going to get better is because technology gets better and that's what it does but as we already started to see with every piece of technology around the climate like there is not a sort of direct like some sort of like teleological push from the depths of history towards some better future there just isn't uh, you know the the push is towards making things cheaper and faster and more profitable um it's not towards making things better it's not towards making things easier it's not towards making people's lives happier without massive amounts of organization and struggle and suffering and the conscious building of a better world. Yeah. And, and I think that's kind of the, the big problem, right? Is there's no mission. There's no one at the reins of the helm saying, Hey, we're worried about the future and we're going to make these changes. Even if it's not just about climate change, if it's, war and poverty and hunger that there are let's say groups of people and societies that are working on this but it sure as shit isn't the ones that are focused on the technology uh in fact i would argue that the ones focused on technology are working on the opposite project of how can we introduce more poverty to other places so we can use that workforce to make our evil technology um but hey that's just me shooting from the hip here and you, you're talking about this drive or whatever, the drive of these articles, like the mission here is stop caring so much. The mission is it's bad, mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean you have to care about it. How do you fucking sleep at night? So here's another excerpt. And this, this, is, this one is the funniest, I think, the, the grimly funniest. Quoting from the article, you see children saying things like, the world's going to burn up. We're all going to be dead in 20 years. And that's pretty unlikely. Susan Clayton, a conservation psychologist who studies how climate change affects mental health, told National Geographic in an article about kids with climate anxiety. And this is one of the most common tactics that I see in these fucking things, too, is that rather than talking to a climate expert on what is actually expected for agriculture or water or hydrology cycles or extreme weather events or raising tides or any of the actual things we know are going to be impacted. They talk to a psychologist who's like, I don't think it's going to be that bad, actually. I think it's actually fine. We, I don't think we're all going to be dead in 20 years, which is probably the case. 
but you are cherry picking something that a child is anxious about and saying like, whoa, whoa, actually, you know, we're not all going to be dead in 20 years. Maybe, I don't know, 60% of you or whatever. Like there's, there's this like a refusal to like engage with actual statistics and actual science that is so like horse race in terms of the actual, the actual goals of what we're talking about here. It, I don't know. That's the thing that makes me feel crazy. Like stop. If you're, if you're not writing an article about psychology specifically, stop getting their opinions because I appreciate the work they're doing. They are not doing the work in climate science. In fact, that's the problem. No one is. We're all working on the psychology. Well, that's the the thing I get to here is there's like this, I think there's this total lack of empathy here uh, to look at like kids who are anxious about climate change and be like, okay, where's the problem here with these kids that are anxious about climate change? And to end up deciding, oh, there's something wrong with these kids and it's that they're anxious. We need to like make the kids less anxious instead of being like, maybe there's something wrong with the way <laughs> that we're treating the fucking climate. Maybe the climate change is the problem and the kids are feeling anxious because they're not insane, because they're not <laughs> like mm -hmm. delusional. Yeah. And here's here's a, another sort of continuation of that excerpt. When our daughter asks about environmental issues. I'd like to tell her that a few generations ago, there was smallpox, but some kids studied hard and grew up into grown-ups who fought to eradicate it. I tell her that there was leaded gasoline, but we learned that it was bad and phased it out. I tell her that today there is climate change and solving it is going to require new inventions and new ideas, and she can be the one to invent them. Which, and, and I think I have referenced this in like seven future episodes, the idea of like, hey, um we're worried that the world is going to burn up. And uh, so I had you a child and you can work on this. This is your project now. Um, and I'm excited because look at all these progresses that we've made so far, which it seems like at least let's say a hundred years ago or whatever. I, I don't, I don't read books. I'm, I'm not like actual history. Let's say 300 years ago or 400 years ago, you're a frontiersman and you're out here just trying to eke out an existence you know, with farming or ranching or whatever, you have a bunch of fucking kids because it's like, oh shit, I need someone to take care of the chickens and, you know, thatch hay or whatever the hell happened back then. I don't know. But the idea of having a child now and being like, hey, um, you're going to get a degree uh, in some sort of technology specialization and you're really going to figure this out. I'm excited for you for this. It's like, what the fuck? You can't sign me up for that shit. I can I can pick eggs and like take care of chickens. I don't know that I'm necessarily going to want to do that with my life. That seems fucked up. It seems fucked up to do to your kid. Well, it's like more of this like evading responsibility thing of like, first it's like, it's not that bad. We don't need to worry. But to the extent that we do need to worry, it's somebody else's problem. It's this, it's not a rational thought process. It's a very like sort of self-centered uh, and irrational thought process. And it's especially disgusting to like, you know, to be looking at your own kid and be putting that on some 12 year old shoulders. Like, why do you think that it'll be easier for your kid than it is for you? I mean, the exact yeah. opposite is yeah. the case. The, the longer we wait, the harder this is. Yeah. And, and that point about smallpox as well, I think is especially grim in light of COVID-19 that, Hey, there was this virus that literally, if we did a good enough job managing <laughs> like how the thing spreads, we could have eradicated it. But now we're to the point where 
hey, this is just something that exists now. Like the the actual medical approach is, mm, you'll, I guess life expectancies are shorter now. Like, and then you can turn to your kids and be like, well, you're not old. You're fine. It's not, it's not an issue for you. As if there's not like a reverberation through all elements of society and secondary healthcare as a result of this shit. Like the person writing this article probably literally contributed to that whole COVID-19 response going fucking sideways because there's an expectation that, well, we do have to get back to Disney world pretty soon here. We got, we got to go see the mouse. We got to go on our vacations. We got to do this. And uh, you're welcome children because you get to go to Disneyland. And it's like, no, you're missing the point. (laughs) The point is that that immediate, you know, hit of endorphins you get from eating some delicious microplastic engineered poisonous thing that goes away pretty soon Versus, you know, the the actual path that got you there is you you have to be pretty contrived, like you say, Alex, to convince yourself that none of this is an issue and that it's all just fine. And there's this piece here too of like, there was leaded gasoline, but we learned that it was bad and phased it out. We learned that gasoline is bad, and that is not phased out. <laughs> yeah, there are clearly more steps here than just figuring out that it's not good. <laughs> yeah and didn't it also take like 30 years to get rid of like gasoline and it made it killed like hundreds of thousands or like completely did all this brain damage like it wasn't good yeah it wasn't I a mean, good response no it was a very 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 inadequate response i mean even the like the the history of smallpox i mean the history of smallpox eradication is like it's not a quick and done thing it's it mm-hmm. it it depending on where you want to start the clock you know you can say the clock starts like in the 15th century in china when people like come up with a variolation eat like the little scabs so you don't get smallpox like as a conscious political effort it started like in the 40s as a competition between the americans and the soviets and it took you know 40 years and most of that time was sort of like easy cherry picking stuff and it left you know like the 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 horn of africa like totally ignored for 30 years it it was a project that happened it was a project that ultimately worked but in the process like recapitulated all of the sort of extremely awful prejudices of like the mid 20th century world mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that's it if that's the model that we're going for yeah, pretty not oh, a good boy. one. <laughs> yeah, not you. You could see why children feel anxiety on this shit. Seeing what they're talking about, giving those examples. Like, if your daughter reads this article, let's say five years in the future, and she's like, "Oh, I was right. You're an idiot." Like, cheers to you, uh, little one. Uh, anyway, it's not as though, and it's not as though like kids get upset about stuff. Like, obviously, kids get upset about stuff. Like, kids are constantly worrying about things. Like, kids are worrying about things in ways that maybe they can't do a lot to solve themselves being kids but like their worries are important they're meaningful they're like about real things Mm -hmm. like when i was a kid i was very very worried about nuclear war even though it was the 90s and we were done being worried about nuclear war as a society like it doesn't mean that those things stop existing it doesn't mean that those concerns are like meaningless just because you're sort of like setting up a eight-year-old worrying about the world burning up as a straw man they have they're 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 perfectly real people yeah yeah 100 percent. 
That actually, th sorry, there's just a point that you make there that I really enjoy, uh, and I didn't pick up on at first until you said it, but this is an article where, like, the central conflict is between the writer and, like, children. Like, <laughs> like the position she's arguing against is, like, one that she's... She's cooked up, like like you said, this like straw man child that is like the target of this article. What an idiot! She's like My going idiot after. Kid is worried about climate change. <laughs> I can easily destroy an imaginary child. Easily in the battlefield of ideas. It's the actual. It's the Ben Shapiro thing, but with your own kid, not someone else's kid. Like, come on. Be a little nicer. Like, oh, I wrote an article about you today, honey. Like, oh, can I read it? Oh, no, don't. I bully you in it. Um, so this is how the article ends. It's just a little bit of a longer excerpt here. I explained that if we had better batteries, then we could use solar for more of our power grid. So maybe she can learn how to invent better batteries. I explained that we could grow beef without cows, that they wouldn't belch methane. So maybe she'll be the one to figure out how to do that in a cost-effective way. But I have yet to find a children's book that frames the climate crisis in that way. As a challenge, but one like the many that humanity has overcome, and one that our kids can overcome by learning about the world and inventing new solutions. If you know of one, I'm in the market for recommendations. If you don't, I invite you to think about where that this hole in our message is for children leaves them. Which is so funny. Her, her final sizzle in the article is... Hey, I'm worried that there's not enough literature supporting my insane, incorrect worldview. And you, I'm now scolding you, the reader of this article, to say, hey, we don't have this book. How fucking dare you? Why hasn't someone written this? Like, Think about why that is. Think about why we don't have that book. <laughs> and and again, it comes to this thing of like, we need this this technical fix or whatever. It's like tofu was invented like nine million years ago like vegetables were invented they invented fucking <laughs> yeah. carrots 12 billion years ago they invented fucking <laughs> celery long before i was born like we do have solutions to the what things can you eat that aren't beef question like that's a solved problem <laughs> The problem, the unsolved problem is getting to eat, you know, getting people to eat those things instead of beef. And that's not a technical problem. <laughs> that's a societal problem. Yeah. But it could be, there could be a technical problem if you had some like giant, like <laughs> rather than having regular food, you walk into some horrible contraption that suspends your arms and then it put, it tilts your head back like you know, a foie gras factory where they're force feeding a duck and then they just like pump soy into you. And it's like, hey, guess what? You don't have to worry about eating anymore. You walk into the booth once a day, done. And it's like, all right, I'm working. I guess I'm writing the technical specs for that thing rather than just like, well, you could just eat it yourself, fucker. Like, come on. You just have to like think about these things. It's so, it's so insane. One of the worst articles of all time, I think. I'm absolutely up there with like, I don't know. Something really heinous. I couldn't. I couldn't give you a more specific example because it makes me so mad. Fox.com. I would appreciate it if you did a better job. So here's uh, here's another funny one. So this is on a similar sort of vein as the Vox. Uh, it's from Wired.com, and it's called "Some Kind of Good News." Or sorry, excuse me. Some kind of good climate news. Two degrees is doable. That is not good news. That's bad news. 
Are we gonna get? Are we? Are we gonna get one of these every time we blow past the next? The next? The next? The next? <laughs> cut off. Yeah. Like we're gonna get some kind of good news in in five years. Two five is doable. In twenty thirty two, we're gonna be we're gonna be back here yet again. Good news. Three is doable. You know what? Two. <laughs> hustle grind hustle grind money mindset you are not focusing on your failures you're focusing on the future (laughs) opportunities we could hey if we work really hard we could still have rain 10 years from now it's gonna happen in like 2030 like oh that's awesome i love that and here's the first excerpt from the article for all the less than encouraging news about climate change rapid sea level rise the land itself transforming serious trouble brewing under antarctic glaciers We've been getting plenty of hope. The price of renewable energy is crashing, for example, and we're moving towards a cleaner, electrified future faster than you may realize, which is really, really funny because uh, we're not, number one. And number two, that's bullshit because emissions continue to rise. The idea that we could head off two degrees means not only do we not need to burn less carbon, we also need to rapidly get rid of all the things that rely on creating carbon, putting it in the air. And all of those things are going fucking up. Like we haven't even hit the inflection point where it's decreasing yet. In fact, we're seeing an almost exponential increase as we're sort of coming out of the COVID area era. And, you know, there's this push for like a new new economic growth model because, oh, we have to catch up for the, the like seven weeks that we were all locked down or whatever. Like it's insane. That's that's not the case at all. Anyway, I'll, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll continue here. From the article, that shift is clear in a darn near uplifting paper that publishes today in the journal Nature. Modeling by an international team of scientists shows that if nations uphold their recent climate pledges, including made those at COP26, humanity may keep warming under two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, the goals outlined in the Paris Agreement. It isn't under the 1.5 degree threshold we'd really want, the agreement's more optimistic goal, but it's far from the extreme warming of three, four, or even five degrees as some scenarios projected prior to the agreement. And it will only happen if nations carry out their promises to quickly decarbonize their economies, which isn't guaranteed. So frustrating. And and that's the other part of this. (laughs) Crazy. Go ahead, This thing of like, if we follow through on these pledges, we will get a bad outcome uh, as like optimistic news is wild. And also like the, this thing of like the, if they uphold these pledges or whatever is so frustrating because you hear again and again and again, like this thing of like, the optimistic news of like, we could stop, which it's like, that's not optimistic news. The optimistic news is we stopped. (laughs) (laughs) This is like, and I, I hate to make this comparison, but this is like the, uh, the mindset of like, listen, yes. You know, I am getting drunk all the time. Yes. Like I drink every single day. But I could stop doing that. Like, yeah. <laughs> okay, then stop doing it. You know, and, and if you haven't yet stopped doing it, then we don't get to feel good about how we might stop doing it. And as someone that worries about climate change a lot, like I'm constantly thinking about it. It really stresses the fuck out of me. Like I can't, I can't lie. When they're talking about the psychologist, I'm like, ooh, maybe I should try that. And then I have to like slap myself in the face and be like, no, these people are trying to distract me. But it's like, imagine if you're in a room 
and you're tied to a chair and a guy with a gun is he has a gun in his hand and he's loading it. He's like, good news. I, I could not load this gun and kill you with it. And you're like, oh, that's awesome. I hope you don't do that. But he keeps loading the gun. And you're like, hey, um, can you untie me? He's like, no. Oh, shit. You're going to kill me with that gun. Like, it, just stop listening to what these psychos say. You, you, it, it's not true. <laughs> like, they're lying to you all the time. And uh, the the... There's an actual scientific paper that I, I wanted to discuss in this one because I realized the first time we did this, I didn't do this. It's um, It was published. So this article came out in April 2022, and there has been a new article that came in, uh, I think this was published like June, July this year. So it was outside of the scope, but it was by M.T. Dvorak et al. And it's effectively sort of a study of where we're at for current uh, current geophysical commitments. It's called Estimating the Timing of Geophysical Commitment to 1.5 and 2.0 Degrees of Global Warming by M.T. Dvorak and a bunch of other people. Uh, I, I, sorry if that's rude if I don't mention everybody else, but I assume everybody's only looking at the first author anyway. And here's just an excerpt that I want to take from that paper, like a key outcome, which I think is, is really important to understand. Two important insights are that, one, the world will have a greater than 66% probability of being committed to peak warming above 1.5 degrees Celsius by 2027 to 2032 in all emission scenarios, and by 2 degrees Celsius by 2043 to 2057 in medium to high emission scenarios. And number two, these emission temperature, these temperature commitments will occur for four to six years before the 1.5 and 2 degree, 2 degree Celsius warming levels will be exceeded, assuming emissions follow SS. 2-4.5, which is, I guess, the closest to the, the current pathway you could estimate we're on for actual carbon emissions, which, to summarize my understanding, and challenge me if I'm wrong on this, but that we have effectively already put enough greenhouse gases into the, in, into the atmosphere that we have committed ourselves to 1.5 degrees, potentially by late this decade, which is very soon. So we're already talking about mitigation and adaption being vital here. Uh, and that SSP 2-4.5 scenario path also kind of assumes that at some point we do get our shit together and we do start decreasing emissions or capping them or, you know, having rapid, you know, um, deindustrialization or whatever, that kind of stuff, which none of that is happening. So even that framing in the paper that 1.5 or 2 degrees warming is possible is overly optimistic in and of itself because we can see the momentum that our society is going where, hey, we'll just keep industrializing. We'll just keep burning this shit and we won't worry about the consequences at all, which that's why I, I hate these articles like, hey, you should be optimistic about the future because we, we totally could do something about this. Uh, and we probably will because we won't accept that suffering, but we already accept that suffering today and it's all around us and it's getting worse all the time. And also it's like we've been writing these articles of like these like hopeful, optimistic, feel good articles forever out of this like misguided belief that like the only way you can get people to do things is if they feel amazing the entire time that they're doing it. And like, I don't know that that's the case. Like, I think that the this thesis of like uh, people are insanely weak and in, like if they feel even a little bit bad, then they won't do anything and they'll throw like a little temper tantrum or whatever is very misguided. The 
and and it shows a, like a lack of respect for like other people, right? Because it's like this framing of like everybody is babies and we need to like sort of insulate them from reality and tell them like just the right sort of version, just the right story that'll make them feel just the right way so that they'll do something. You know, there's usually not a call to action, but like they'll do a thing, presumably something. And when I just don't think that that's true, I think like, you know, fundamentally everybody is like, you know, is a person, you know, you can have respect for them and like have the respect necessary to like be straightforward and honest. Almost the suggestion that the, the real problem with climate change is the optics. Like, Ooh, it looks really bad. We want to really keep a lid on this thing. So people don't like panic and start killing each other. Like we're already panicking and killing each other. That's we're we're already there. We could, we could admit that it's happening and then maybe we can start actually working on the problem. Uh, but here's here's the last excerpt from the actual article, which I think is so uh, unbelievably counterintuitive. And this is a quote. Those very high emission trajectories that people used to talk about don't look quite so likely today, says Christophe McGlade, head of the Energy Supply Unit at the International Energy Agency and a co-author of, of the new paper. It's a bit of good news because it shows that the world has made progress in terms of policy and technology over the past few years, which... So, I mean, we've discussed this a number of times this episode, but no, we haven't. And no, we haven't. <laughs> that effectively this article, this paper that they're referring to seems to have been written uh, sort of at the tail end of 2020 when we saw a massive drop of emissions, not because of policies related to the climate, but policies related to COVID, which maybe that is where the actual optimism is, because we know that if we implement policies that restrict how much people drive and how much people consume and what we're doing with our time and, and efforts, it does actually have an impact to the emissions levels. And that could be a really powerful tool, but we would have to actually implement those and, and, and sort of have some, you know, have some structure around how that all works and how people live their lives, which would be massive changes. And it would be massive changes for almost everybody at the same time. But it's, it's just, yeah, this is, again, another, another, hey, try not to care. Make sure you don't care too much about this stuff, because if you do, you'll become sad, and sad people don't do anything. It's like, well, there's a lot of very spurious logical leaps there. And, and uh, no, another another thumbs down. Uh, if if I was Caesar, I would be, you know, saying, send, send the lines on this article. I think the there's a, a point to be made here, too which is that uh, we've sort of reached the point where the only responsible chart to be showing people is this, uh, this one right here that you can see with the audio format very clearly. Um, mm -hmm. can... there's, there's, sorry, let me describe it. There's a bunch of red squiggles and a black line that's going up. Yeah, this Go is ahead, the uh, atmospheric CO2 at... Oh, fuck. <laughs> Mao... Mauna Loa Observatory. I think it's Manaloa. Manaloa. Oh, that Manaloa Observatory. That works. Yeah. Know. But it just, you know, CO2 concentration from uh, a little bit before 1960 up through the present. <laughs> uh, and that line is going up and it's going up like I was about to do like this. <laughs> that line is going up. Listeners, Alex did a curve. It's going computer. up and to the right, baby. <laughs> And that's like, you know, for all the encouraging feel-good news about 
solar panels or like new mines that we're opening or whatever the fuck like the fundamental thing is that the concentration of warming gases is going up not down and it needs to go down and it's not doing that like that's the story the story is not it you know it might go down or whatever like the story is that it's going up yeah and speaking of and speaking of and speaking of like possibly going down i correct me if i'm wrong but is this story not still based on the notion that even as like the author sort of like you know makes fun of the idea that uh, that that net zero pledges are going to successfully involve some kind of like massive scale carbon sequestration uh, correct me if i'm wrong but the paper in nature is still relying on the fact that that is going to happen sometime by 2050 which as far as i know is still physically not possible yes like not not just an unsolved problem of like organization or like an unsolved problem of like getting the capital together but just like a physically unsolved problem yeah we haven't figured out how to do magic yet <laughs> yeah like and it comes back to that same thing of avoiding reality of like oh you know if it's a problem it's not that big of a problem it's not something you have to worry about the most important thing is that you avoid the fact that this might make you feel bad you know the the kids are going to solve it the politicians are going to solve it magic is going to solve it like this complete refusal to face the facts of like no either we are going to solve it or nobody is going to solve it that things don't just like happen magically for you that you know <laughs> there isn't this like uh arc to history that's going to bend it uh in a positive direction you know it'll bend the way that people make it bend that being said if you're listening to this and you are a wizard reach out because uh, I'm I'm feeling pretty desperate yeah. about climate change at this point, and I'd love some spells. That's true. If one of you knows how to do magic, yeah. I'm happy yeah. to be wrong on that one. <laughs> I would love to be wrong about that one. Put my ass in the dunk tank. I will. I will. You know, flail. You can make fun of how I look in a swimming suit. Whatever. If that's is that how we get to CO two reduction? Cool. Let's do it. If you have that spell, <laughs> do cast hit it. my line. Yeah. 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 Cast a spell. Don't ask for permission. Don't let anybody tell you what you can't do as a wizard because you understand things that uh, clearly I don't. Now, if you're like an SRM wizard, then uh, yeah, do not be doing that. <laughs> yeah, never mind. If, if you think that yeah, if you think that releasing sulfates into the high atmosphere is is magic, um, I will ask that you relinquish any advanced degrees that you hold and that you sort of report yourself to jail because don't if do you're, that. Yeah, if you're a sulfate bender. Uh, we need to imprison. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I got one more article, and and this one's a little bit more somber, just because it's stuff that I'm more knowledgeable about. But this is in the Financial Post, uh, one of Canada's absolute worst um, rags, uh, just right wing nightmare piece of shit. But this is the last article of today that I want to talk about, and the title is "The Real Climate." Economic Risk is Policy Risk by Terence Cochran. And here's a long excerpt from the beginning. The Bank of Canada's latest research on climate change implied that the bank was warning the financial industry to get ready to deal with the looming climate crisis. In a statement issued last Friday, the bank and Ottawa's Office, office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions, OSFI, which regulates the bank's insurance and financial companies, 
said that their new pilot project research was designed to help Canada's financial sector improve its ability to analyze economic and financial risks affecting financial institutions that could arise from climate change. That and other similar statements suggested that the objective of the new research, built around various scenarios looking forward to global 2050 net zero targets, is to find ways to assess the risk to investors and the economy posed by climate change itself. The reports, however, point to a more important conclusion. The climate risk to Canadian and global economy may not be in a climate change itself, but in the extreme policies now contemplated by governments all over the world. And I think this is this is kind of when we were talking about what, what has to be done and what we need and, and what needs to change. Like we have a pretty good understanding of it. We, we know the solutions that exist, but the people that run our society are effectively these people. It's, it's all over the world. It's the financiers, it's the bankers, it's the, you know, uh, the economists who are saying, well, hold on, you know, how are we going to solve climate change if we don't have a functioning economy? And if we're not worried ab- enough about the flow of money and growth, then, hey, we're not going to be able to accomplish anything because we're just going to be sitting here stuck, you know, sitting on our hands, which is probably the stupidest, most stupidest, most cynical way to approach this problem that the baseline assumption is nothing can really change that much. And if nothing does really change that much, we won't be addressing climate change. So this whole financialization of our world is pretty clearly the thing that got us to this place in the first, in the first point, because we've known about climate change for a long time. The oil and gas companies of America figured it out in the 60s. And for a long time, there were a lot of like good, well, good in in scare quotes there, you know, climate scientists working at those places, figuring it out and understanding like, oh, oh shit, as we continue to burn CO2 in the atmosphere, it heats our globe and it's going to have a bunch of terrible knock-on effects, which have now been confirmed independently by a number of people, a large number of people. And the suggestion is, well... While that might be true, while the physical world we live in might be warming and, and facing sort of an ecosystem collapse that's been you know quoted to me by many, you know, if if we don't have enough rich people, that then fundamentally, hey, what's worth saving? Like that seems to be the implication here. That if, if I can't be rich, then you you may as well die. You, the reader, may as well die. And um, you know, when it comes to Canada specifically, like a, a big part of Canada's economy is extractive in nature. Oil and gas, mining, you know, all massive amount of global mining that happens is done by head corporations that are headquartered in Canada because that's where, you know, that's how Canada was really formed. It's just a big mining company in a, in a bunch of trench coats. So, you know, these and, and understanding that if we do decide finally to actually tackle climate change and actually make large systemic changes to our economy, to commerce, to consumption levels, all that kind of thing, it will be massive changes, especially for those that are involved in those extractive practices, because you're going to have to change them. But the idea of... That's, yeah, that's a, a good point, though, right? That uh, this is like a lot more clear-eyed than the previous article. Yes. Uh, this report is. Uh, because it sees very clearly that like there there are uh, stakes here. This isn't something where like... And there's conflict. There are like different interests. Uh, at play and that it's not like we all want the same thing and like we just need to believe hard enough together you know it's a it's more complicated in that uh in that it's like we all want different things (laughs) and our task is to make the other people 
lose and not get the, what they want. <laughs> like that's the the goal of the climate movement is that there are other people who disagree with the climate movement and they need to lose and not get what they want. <laughs> they need to like have the regulation that they don't want to have. That needs to happen. You know, yeah. there need to be policy changes that suck for them and that they don't enjoy. And, you know, not because it's out of out of cruelty or whatever, but because like the the things that are necessary to help preserve uh, as much quality of life for as many people as possible uh, are things that are going to, you know, uh, affect the quality of life of the people who, you know, own Shell, you know, of the people who <laughs> have like, who, you know, create financial instruments to trade oil you know like yeah that has to <laughs> that has to get cut down on bummer for you you know <laughs> we need we need that first vox style article but not aimed at children but aimed at like executives being like listen we know you're <laughs> upset we're gonna have to change everything um yeah <laughs> and I'll, by the way right now some sort of police officer is at your door and they're taking you away um <laughs> But, but to that point, Alex, here's here's, a, here's another excerpt, which which sort of, uh, I, I think, really crystallizes that point you were making uh, from the article. As the main bank slash OSFI report, using scenario analysis to assess climate transition risk makes clear, the objective was not to examine the financial and investment risk posed by the physical impact of climate change, floods, fires, weather, etc. The objective was to look at the potential impact of government policies, taxes, subsidies, regulation, etc., on investment and financial risk. And the thing that I, I really want to highlight as someone that has worked with a lot of people like this in, in my career is these people are fundamentally really fucking stupid. Like they, it, it doesn't seem like it because when you talk about some, you know, finance executive, you assume, oh, they have all this knowledge and all of this training and all this information at their fingertips. But the discount of hey, the physical world you live in relative to the financial world that they live in is insane because the financial world is predicated on a real world existing. And those floods, fire, weather, et cetera, yeah, that will actually impact the other shit as well. That all these estimates on, well, what could actually happen to GDP with climate change, you literally couldn't predict it. You, you couldn't model and what happens to it because you're not going to be able to predict what gets set on fire and what floods and what weather destroys what sections of the world. Like the assumption that the, the physical reality is, is, you know, sort of required is, is a secondary effect based on how the financial guys make their move. Like the financial ingenuity is the thing that shapes reality when it is really the other way around. And that's sort of those sort of financial systems are just the economy. It's just how we trade money and commerce and things like that insane it's just not the case like don't if someone tells you that the, the real risk is like oh if i don't have a job let me promise you climate change is going to put a lot of people out of work all over the place and it's not going to be predictable and unlike a regulation let's say that might say hey we're going to shift labor from here to here or there's going to be better farming practices or we're going to be carbon whatever that thing could be it could be managed rather than waiting for climate change to punch your fucking economy in the face and hey guess what you don't have one anymore there's no more society because you put this off long enough that not only do the financial instruments not work 
I'm trading, you know, food with like shells and shit. Or I don't know, like some grim doomsday scenario, whatever that looks like to you. It's not financial in nature. It is physical. Yeah, it's this weird like disaggregation of like capital on the one hand and then like the physical instantiation of capital on the other. It's this 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 notion that like capital is sufficiently nebulous at this point at the end of history at whatever you want to call it uh, that you don't sort of have to worry about well the factory burned down well everybody who works there has been displaced by a flood or even you know well suddenly we owe out god knows how much insurance for this town burning down um there's this sort of like weird disaggregation of like the physical world where everyone lives and everyone is impacted on the one hand and then just the pure numbers floating out there in the ether Mm -hmm. maybe i just don't know how like the bank of canada's office of the superintendent of financial institutions works but it's really like strikingly disassociated from people's lives yeah it's it's just stupid like it's it's the assumption that you can control reality with money it's like no no that's that's how you a rich person controls your reality with money but it doesn't like there's no machine that you put dollars into and it's like oh hey here's a poor person to do your laundry for you or whatever like no no that's 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 a mechanism of the money moving around like ah um anyway i don't want to read too much more of this article because it's fundamentally really bad so i'm just going to and, and, we're, and we're getting to the end of the episode here. So I think another another to, to compliment the writers of this further, mm-hmm. uh, there is like an important point to be made here, which is that like and, and it couples with what uh, both of you were sort of saying, where with such dramatic changes to ongoing already happening, but going to intensify changes to like the physical world that we live in, there are going to be changes that are going to be necessitated by that in the social world. There's literally no way that that doesn't happen. And I think that, you know, that's kind of the type of risk that they're sort of talking about, that there might be these shifts in in the social reality because of these shifts in the material reality. Uh, But I think that's also like a call to action uh, for people who have, you know, love for their fellow man or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, that like the history is sort of turning <laughs> and uh, we need to have it turn the right way, right? So I'm just going to, I'm going to pull up the last sizzle of the article here. Um, before this point, they were taught, there was a panel, of, a panel of Canadian CEOs, you know, <laughs> get those guys in one room, you know what I'm saying? Uh, but this is how the article ends. Dave McKay, CEO of RBC, joined an agreement. The market, he said, will not solve the carbon problem. Canada needs a major public-private consortium to help green the grid. Which is so funny after you come to the end of this, where your whole premise is that, well, um, you know, the real risk here is financial and these evil governments, you know, putting carbon taxes or, you know, necessitating certain caps on emissions or whatever, whatever mechanism they're afraid of that probably is not that efficient to start with. But then he ends with saying, actually the private market won't solve this because it's not profitable and we need the public, uh, we need the public side to actually bail us out and do this thing. Hey, guess what? It turns out that the private market is the problem. It, you, you can even admit it in this article and say, the fact that the private market, the thing that is concerned about making more money is the issue. It's like, yeah, you're right. 
We don't need a private-public consortium. We need something a little bit stronger than that. <laughs> and I think the private side of that is just going to have to sort of take whatever comes and uh, get adjusted very significantly because the idea that we're going to green the grid as if that's the one problem we have with climate change is, oh, it's just power generation. It's literally everything, Dave. Dave, you shouldn't be the CEO of, you know, a bowel movement that you make. You, you should be in some sort of jail somewhere. That's what I'm saying. Dave McKay, go to jail, please. I think that there is like a, a consistency too between these these points of like talking about the financial risks of of uh, kind of climate policy, and then also talking about the need for investment. It's sort of the actual risk that they're talking about here with both of these, or the, like the underlying point here is like the the underlying concern is like the government needs to put our interests first. Like that's the the thing that connects them. And I think that that's like a very clear-eyed assessment of like their position and what makes sense for them is like, if you are the head of RBC, then like, yeah, what needs to happen for you, what you want to happen, what's in your interests mm -hmm. is for the government to put your interests first. <laughs> like, of course <laughs> yeah. it is, you know? And the flip side of that, that I think more and more people uh, are becoming aware of is that the government needs to, is that it's in their interests for the government to put them first. It's in our interests for the government to put us first. Uh, and it's, you know, and we need to, uh, and it comes back to that point about like, we need to win and other people need to lose. <laughs> um, where it's like, yeah, part of doing this right means putting the interests that the CEO of RBC or whoever has in making money second to the interest that other people have in living into old age. <laughs> and that's fine. It's okay to have that, to have, you know, his, uh, you know, stock options or whatever, like have that take a back seat to, you know, the lives and livelihoods of other people. Yeah. I'm very comfortable advocating for that. Absolutely. No, well put. And uh, I think that is an awesome note to end it on. Uh, you know, listeners, if, uh, well, again, call to action. If you are a wizard, cast that spell. Um, but, you know, you be an actual wizard. We don't want no, no, no tech guys that, you know, have robes because I know you're out there. We saw what happened to the FTX exchange, you know, for, for, uh, for everybody else, uh, you know, check out Jeff's project podcast, Terraform. I'm very excited to uh, check it out when it launches. When it launches, we'll make sure to include a little seminars. But um, uh, Jeff and Alex, thank you so much for talking about these awful pieces of shit that we took a look at today. Uh, it's always lovely connecting with you. Uh, Jeff, double thanks for doing this the second time. Uh, five months later, but hey, that's that's all that's all <laughs> just scheduling, baby. You know, I'm, it is, hey. the podcast is coming out this week. That's that's my proclamation of the world. Episode one launches this week. I've got the music. I've done some editing. I'm ready to do this. Uh, it's happening. It's happening. Awesome. Episode one, Manifesto of the Fish. Gentlemen, thank you. And Alex? Uh, and do for sure check out that podcast. Uh, Jeff's a very smart guy and uh, has put a lot of work into making this uh, a good experience for you. So Yeah, it's, um, it's oh yeah, it's uh, at, uh, at, it's Terraform Pod. Uh, Terraform and Pod on Twitter. I 
that's probably the name that's going to be on everywhere else that you can find your podcast. Awesome. Yeah. All right. This is episode one of Manifesto of a Fish. Signing off. Thank you.